Hey everyone, it's Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us today. America has always had wealthy people, and it has always had poverty. But perhaps never before has the massive disparity between the two seemed so significant or so insurmountable. In the 2020 presidential campaign, several Democratic candidates have come up with proposals that they say will narrow the wealth gap. Most of them focus on new taxes for the rich. Both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are proposing a specific wealth tax as a means of redistributing opportunity in this country. That's where we want to begin the conversation today as part of our new series, Defining 2020, where we try to drill down on some of the issues that will challenge us this year as we wind up for a significant presidential campaign and, of course, the presidential election in November. What should be done about the gap between rich and poor? Democrats have their ideas. Republicans seem to think that that gap is not as significant. We also want to hear from you. What do you think of the idea for a wealth tax on the ultra-rich? What are your thoughts about the growing inequality, the growing economic inequality that we see in America? Is it something you even think about? And if you do, if you think it is something that needs to be addressed, Tell us what you would do. Do you support the idea of these wealth taxes, or do you think that there are other ideas? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter at hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk more about the wealth tax in particular and the ideas that Democratic candidates are sharing is Daniel Shaviro. He is the Wayne Perry Professor of Taxation at NYU. Daniel Shaviro, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yes. All right, so let's talk specifically about the wealth tax. What exactly is it, and how would it work? Well, it doesn't exist yet, uh, but if it were enacted, obviously it would depend upon what they enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to kind of figure out the market value, which is not a self-defining term, of, all, of everything a given individual owns. So if I were a billionaire, all my land, all my stocks, all my funny financial options, uh, really all this sort of financial and and sort of physical property I own in the world, how much is it worth? Uh, the idea would be to value it and then have a tax based on the amount of wealth in which there'd be a huge exemption amount to make sure that most people, you know, well into the top 1% didn't have to pay anything. That's pretty much the idea. And talk about how that's different from the way that we tax everybody right now. What would What would change under that system? Well, we, this would be in addition to what we have now. We main, the main thing we have now is an income tax. So an income tax is really, uh, it's kind of like your salary and your interest and dividends for the year. And even kind of in theory, it's the extent to which your wealth increased value during the year rather than what its value is at the beginning or the end. But most of the times when a rich person's wealth increases in value, it avoids any tax. It's just like you don't pay tax just because your Facebook stock stock tripled in value. You'd have to sell it or get a dividend. So the income tax uh, is broader in one sense, uh, but it's really narrower because very wealthy people uh, can often minimize it even without uh, playing extreme tax planning games. And and uh, the two candidates who are talking about this, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are of course proposing these ideas because they believe it will narrow the gap between the poor and the rich, or maybe between the middle class and the rich. Talk about what effect it might have. Would, would this accomplish what its supporters believe it would? Well, one of the big fights is about how effective it would be, how enforceable it is. People hide assets, fast assets are hard to value, they claim a low value. Uh, that sort of depends on how broadly it's done. If you imagine that Warren or Sanders was elected president, enacted the wealth tax, the Supreme Court didn't strike it down. They devoted administrative resources to it, and they drafted it in such a way as to make it tough. There's a real chance it could have a significant effect. 
but there are kind of questions each step along the way of how well all that would work. You could imagine a wealth tax being enacted like the ones they've had in Europe a lot of time that are pretty ineffective. Uh, I think it's possible to make it effective, but it would take a pretty big act of political will. So that's that's kind of part of the equation here, too. I also think uh, it would be struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional for one very simple reason. There are five Republicans on the court. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of hard to know what the right or quote, is it really constitutional? I think uh, a motivated reasoner on either side could easily get to the conclusion that it is or isn't. And the five on the Supreme Court, I think, are pretty darn motivated reasoners. So they're going to say it's not. If the uh, justice that President Obama wanted to appoint after Scalia's death had been on the court, there'd be a very good chance that it would be held constitutional. Mm -hmm. But with the current five, there's no chance. Uh, again, that's not to say whether it, quote, really is. It's just a sort of prediction of what will happen. Yeah. So so one of the reasons that this proposal or these proposals, I think, are are gaining uh, support and, and interest right now is the way in which tax policy has changed recently in America. We have seen uh, Republican presidents and Democratic presidents pass tax reform bills that that were supposed to benefit the middle class, but of course had even more dramatic effects on the taxes that wealthy people pay. Talk about over time how we've moved to a, a presumption, I guess, that, that people who make and have lots of money shouldn't have to pay very much in, in taxes. Well, the 2017 uh, Tax Act, with all due respect, it was consciously dishonest in uh, insofar as anyone claimed that it was not going to cut taxes at the top. It was meant to, and it did, and everyone knew that. Mm -hmm. There were some lies about it. That said, I'm not saying one couldn't have supported the act in good faith uh, based on one's beliefs, but it wouldn't be based on the idea that you were raising taxes or even not cutting taxes at the top. It would have to be because you thought you wanted to do it for other reasons or for that reason. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1986, the famous tax reform then, uh, they aim to be distributionally neutral between different income classes. But two interesting things about that. At first, it was really only for a five-year period, and the out years, which weren't estimated, was probably going to help rich people more for various reasons. And secondly, we didn't have the same concern about billionaires then. The funny thing is, when they looked at distributional neutrality, they were really only concerned with maybe, say, the top 2% against everyone else. Right now, uh, the interest is very different. It's not like someone who's in the 98th percentile of wealth. It's the billionaires. And the reason for that change is that there's been a change on the ground in our society, and there's been a, a huge growth of wealth at the very top. So that's a very different ish problem and issue than it was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And talk about the gap between those who are maybe consider themselves in the middle class and those who are in poverty and those who are wealthy. That has grown over time. Yeah. Tax policy is one of the reasons that's true, but but there are some other things that are going on in the culture and the economy that also have an effect on, on that gap. By the way, the middle class is a funny term. Right. If you're in the 98th percentile, you think you're in the middle class. <laughs> right. And there's a reason for it. You know people are above you and you know people are below you. So you say, hey, I'm in the middle. Uh, but the, the very top has really pulled away. Uh, it's called fractal inequality. I forget the reason for it's called that, but it's the, the top 1% is pulling away from the rest. The top 0.1% is pulling away from the top 1%. The top 0.01%, you get the idea. It's mm -hmm. kind of really rising to the top. And we can see it in our culture when you see, you know, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's kind of a change. And although... Economists who are trying to measure it disagree to an extent about just how much it's been. I think the consensus view probably is that we haven't really seen anything like that in this country to this extent since the so-called Gilded Age that was like 1870 to 1900. And, and the, what is the solve for that? Uh, it's a hard problem. Uh, by the way, uh, economists and such disagree about sort of two basic theories of it. They could both be true. In fact, I think there's some truth to both. The first theory is that it's just something about technology and demography and globalization. It's some sort of thing about the processes in our society that no one controls that are just happening, pushed that way. And I think there's definitely some truth to that. The second view is that it has to do with political policy choices that were made, such as making the income tax less progressive, uh, uh, 
less controls on financial and bank activity. I think both theories have a partial explanation to them. Hmm. Uh, so it's uh, they're definitely tax is not the only place that uh, you can take steps to try to address it. Things like the growth of monopolies and uh, concentrated power by the big companies and things like that are also parts of the whole thing. Mm. And at the bottom, education, opportunity. Uh, I really think that uh, people talk about inequalities if we're a single topic. I think what's happening at the top and what's happening at the bottom are sort of distinct problems that we have to think about separately and also address separately. And draw some distinctions between what's going on now and what we saw going on, as you say, in the Gilded Age, for instance, and and the ways in which government responded. There there have been various times in the history of this country where wealth has accumulated among uh, fewer people than perhaps people thought was was wise, and there have been ways that the government has tried to disrupt that. What what's different about now than uh, before? Well, uh, the when like wealth inequality rose in the late 19th century, the government really didn't do anything to try to address it until, uh, or a little bit, but it really was after the turn of the century, like the so-called progressive era, like up, uh, running the run-up to Teddy Roosevelt and Wilson and the run-up to World War One, And then, of course, in the New Deal era, uh, there was a lot of, of things done, although by then the wealth inequality at the top was fading simply because the stock market and so forth were doing so badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the past, it took a long time for anything to sort of be done about it because there are big political fights. One thing is when the, the wealthiest people get wealthier, that kind of means all else equal, they have more power. Uh, it's sort of well known in the U.S. today that proposals that get like 90% support from the general public don't even get voted on in Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these have nothing to do with wealth, like gun, say gun control, but also things like, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that if you took a poll of Republican voters, you'd find a lot of support for the wealth tax, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't really think from listening to the politicians. Right, right. Uh, my guest is Daniel Shaviro. He's the Wayne Perry Professor of Taxation at NYU. We are talking about the wealth gap in America, the extent to which the wealthy are getting wealthier and those who are in poverty are falling further behind. Is there a policy proposal that would help fix that? Is that policy proposal the wealth tax that's been proposed by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, for instance, in the Democratic presidential primary? Are there other ideas that would help narrow the gap between the wealthy and the poor? Uh, We're talking about this as part of our series, Defining 2020, where we want to drill down on issues that will challenge us in 2020 as we prepare for the presidential campaign and, of course, for the election in November. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. What do you think of the idea of a wealth tax on the ultra-rich? What are your thoughts on the growing inequality in this country? And is it something that you even think about? And if you do think about it, what do you think are some of the solutions? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter to join us, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Michael in Detroit. Michael, what's on your mind? Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, uh, I just heard on the news this morning that the uh, highest uh, wage growth uh, is now occurring in the uh, lower income earners. So I think that's a positive sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, uh, I know wealth tax and tax the rich are uh, politically loaded terms that are kind of red meat. But I also think they're pretty simplistic and uh, not very uh, well thought through uh, regarding the wealth tax. Uh, wealthy people are smart enough to find loopholes in everything. (laughs) Why not just impose a luxury tax where if someone wants to buy a $10 million yacht, they pay a 20% tax on that and tax the consumption because the 1% consumes more. And instead of buying that yacht, if they want to invest that money in a startup that creates jobs, then they don't pay tax on that. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I could say something about that. The problem that people see with luxury taxes is it's kind of hard to include everything that they buy. 
So a yacht isn't the only thing that the rich person can buy. Uh, if you kind of look at all, it's very difficult to get something that kind of hits all the high-income luxury goods. Uh, I do want to mention two things that, you know, again, if you're kind of on the Democratic rather than Republican side of things and you're concerned about wealth inequality, the wealth tax is one of the big proposals out there. But two others are simply raising rates at the top and uh, so-called mark-to-market taxation uh, so that when people's assets go up in value, uh, they're taxed on the increase in value right away, just as if they'd like gotten, uh, just as if their bank account had grown. So those are the two other ideas that uh, people who are more on the left and want to do something about it are, are debating. And there's definitely no consensus that the wealth tax is better than those two, again, even presuming that you're sympathetic with the whole approach to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for the call uh, and the insights there. Uh, let's go to Lindsay in Madison Heights. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking my call. I sure. love the show. Oh, thank you. Um, my question is, what can be done to sort of revitalize the middle class? Um, I am a proponent of the wealth tax. My husband and I are both in our early 30s. We're both college graduates, we both work full-time, we have a young child, and even though we both work full-time, we are struggling to put, I mean, a penny aside in savings. Mm -hmm. We have to spend every single cent we bring in just to live, as far as rent and insurance and just the overall cost of living. So um, it seems to me everybody that I know, every friend we have is in the same boat. Mm -hmm. So what can be done so that we can sort of take the pressure off of this younger generation. Yeah. Lindsay, that's I'm, a I'm wonderful, myself, that's I'm a wonderful sorry, question. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, uh, Daniel. I was thinking that sort of thing doesn't really lie in tax policy as much. That is education, healthcare, infrastructure that people use. I think those are the types of places where, of course, those things have to be funded, but actually even if they're funded through like a broad-based consumption tax, uh, if they're used to pay for things like education and healthcare, and retirement saving, then that could really make people like you, uh, if, if the policy is done successfully, it could make people like you, and there are millions of us, a lot better off. So, so explain that a little more, uh, this idea of not tax policy, but other things that would alleviate the pressure on families like Lindsay's. Well, if you, if, if, Lindsay, or for that matter, I lived in Europe, in some of the countries in Western Europe, uh, we would have much cheaper health care that would be about as good mm-hmm. uh, as what we have here, better in some ways, maybe not as good in some others, uh, but as good overall. Uh, you wouldn't have to worry about if you have a very young child, uh, how's that child going to go to college because that would be funded. Uh, you would have uh, great, uh, in some of these countries, like great train systems. So you want to live in one place and you want to work in another place. You can get there fast and cheap uh, without having to have a car uh, necessarily. Uh, things of that sort. Uh, having, uh, again, uh, more of a guarantee. We have Social Security, obviously, more of a guarantee that on retirement you'll be taken care of. People, you get these things like acute end-of-life care that's a disaster for people. Mm-hmm. It's in those types of areas. I, I think that uh, if you kind of teleport <laughs> Lindsay and her family or, for that matter, other people into certain types of places in Europe and like pretending that, that, that that's where they lived and were from and their families were, they'd find that they probably had a lot less pressure on them. Mm. So. And when we talk about those things, though, for instance, when the idea of adopting a healthcare system that might look like healthcare in Europe comes up, the first word that we hear from a lot of people is, well, that's socialism and that's antithetical to the idea of our economic system here in America. Some of the other things you're talking about, the fact that people's higher educations are are subsidized heavily uh, in Europe. Uh, it's very difficult to have a conversation about those things uh, in this country, in our, in our political system. Um, and yet you're suggesting that perhaps those are solutions to the kinds of pressures that people in the middle class uh, feel in terms of trying to just keep up, trying to just to keep their heads above above water financially. Well, markets do a better job at some things than others. I certainly want my shoes and my car and my granola, if I have it for breakfast, to be provided by the market, not mm-hmm. to have like the government mm-hmm. do it. But healthcare 
markets don't work very well for a lot of reasons that a lot of serious economists have written about. And in our country, of course, we sort of use a market approach to healthcare, but people often aren't really paying for what they get uh, because of whether it's employer-provided insurance, whether that's getting less generous, or Medicare. So when you have a market, but uh, people aren't always paying for it, and the doctors are kind of telling them what they need, and uh, also we don't, we're not willing to let just people just die because they can't afford it. Uh, then it kind of becomes a mess. That said, it's not easy to get from. I think there's very widespread agreement that some of these countries have better healthcare systems than we do, but it's not entirely clear how we get from here to there. That's mm-hmm. very difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay, Daniel Shavira, Wayne Perry Professor of Taxation at NYU. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks. All right. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about wealth and wealth inequality. We're going to talk with Timothy Smeeting. He's a Distinguished Professor of Public Affairs and Economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we want to continue to hear from you. Tom in Northwest Detroit, Michelle in Detroit, Watts in Detroit. We will get to your calls next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We are talking today about wealth and wealth inequality, the growing gap between those who live in poverty and those who live with, in some cases, extreme wealth, and extreme wealth we have not seen in the multitudes that we have now in many, many decades here in America. We're talking about that as part of our new series here on WDET called Defining 2020. That is where we are taking a closer look at some of the issues that will challenge us uh, in 2020 as we ramp up the presidential campaign and, of course, get toward November when we will all vote for the next president of the United States. We want to hear from you this hour about what you think about wealth inequality, how much you think about wealth inequality, and what your solutions are. Do you support this idea of, for instance, a wealth tax that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, two Democrats, from the Senate who want to be president, they both say that that is part of the solution, at least, to income inequality. Uh, Are there other ideas? Are there other things that you think we ought to be considering or talking about or doing to narrow the gap between the wealthy and the poor? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. And our next guest uh, is someone else who is thinking a lot about these questions and what the possible solutions might be. Timothy Smeeting is the Lee Rainwater Distinguished Professor of Public Affairs and Economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Timothy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. So uh, former President Barack Obama says uh, inequality is the defining challenge of our time. Talk about how much of a problem inequality really is and how we got here. Okay. Well, inequality is a big topic. And you can talk about the top or talk about the bottom. And then the question is inequality of what? Inequality of income, we think, normally. That's a flow, mm-hmm. what you get every year. And the big, biggest part of that for most people in the middle and the bottom of what they earn But for people in the top, it's what they own, the flow from what they own. Now, that's different from wealth. Wealth is what you actually are worth Mm -hmm. at a particular point in time. So you have to think broadly. And I I think the most corrosive inequality is the inequality of wealth. In other words, what are people worth? And there's huge differences in that. So if you just forget the top 1%, people want to talk about the top 1% or, and um, Senator Warren wants to talk about the very, very top. What we want to talk about, let's say, how much wealth do the top 10% own? Mm-hmm. And the 10% today own 
more than three quarters. They own 77, as of 2016, they own 77% of total wealth in the country. And the bottom 50% own less than 2% of wealth. Now, that's huge, Mm -hmm. huge difference. Now, since we've been recovering, and given the tax law we had in 2017, people who own financial wealth are doing really well. Last year was a killer year in the stock market. 2017 was a killer year in the stock market. That means something like a 25% gain in each of those years. So if you started with 100, you have 125 at the end of the year. Now, you can hold that wealth by owning shares of stock directly or by owning shares of stock through your pension fund. Mm -hmm. And those who have defined contribution funds, funds that they own, saw great appreciation. So that's what's been going on. Uh, And so people with financial wealth have been doing very, very well. And we don't tax that wealth until you actually realize it. So... A lot of times it doesn't show up in our distributional statistics, the flow of income from it, okay? Mm -hmm. But let me tell you why, why do we care about wealth? Well, wealth gives you a cushion, your own safety net, okay? Wealthy parents do lots of things for their kids that don't show up in hardly any of the numbers, but which are incredibly important. At strategic points in your life, they make transfers to help you out. So, uh, the top 10%, the children under the top 10% don't worry about paying for college. They're all set up to pay for college out of their own wealth. And we have something called a 529 plan where you can set money aside for your kid, build it up, and then use it to pay for their education. So the children, the rich, don't worry about what it costs to go to school. Then you graduate and you have your bachelor's degree and you're in Saginaw. Or as with one of my sons, you're in Syracuse, New York. Mm-hmm. And it's the bottom of the recession, and there aren't any job opportunities. So what a parent who can afford to do it does is they pay their kid's way for a month or two or even up to six months to take an internship or to move to a city where there are lots of jobs, and they catch on and they do well. So my son Patrick moved to Boston. I paid his first and last month's rent. In two months, he had a job with Power Remodeling. He's now their vice president for quality control, and he does very well for himself. But that's because I could afford to put him there. He, did, he didn't move into my basement. What he did is he went to Boston, and he made a good living. Hmm. Then it's time to buy a house, and your credit doesn't look too good and whatever, but there's a real opportunity to buy a house. So, okay, I'll co-sign the mortgage with you. So you can get into the housing market. Those are, you know, those are just three yeah. examples. Well, and and that gets to this idea of generational wealth, right? Absolutely. Uh, my parents uh, do well, so these, I right. do. Yeah. Right. And it's not about inheritance. You don't really inherit until you're roughly sixty or above, mm-hmm. because you wait till your last parent passes away, and then they distribute their assets if they have any. Um, um, across their children. And so it's not, by age 60, you know, your your life is pretty well determined. It's what happens before. It's these strategic transfers that allow you to do things. Um, put your kids through all these enriching experiences while they're in school, pay for summer camp, pay for a junior year abroad, pay for this, pay for that, all your way through college, then to get set up after and so forth. And those are the things that the top end has and the bottom doesn't. Hmm. Yeah. Now, if you go to the other end, let's look at the other end of the distribution. Right, the, the bottom. The bottom. So low-income people generally have very little in the way of resources. If you're lucky, you own a home, but most of the homes of most low-income people haven't appreciated nearly as much as those of rich people. There are a few low, lucky low-income people who've been living on one of the coasts in the big city for a long time, and they're doing okay in terms of their housing wealth anyway. Uh, but Then there's consumer debt and unsecured debt, credit cards. Mm -hmm. Then there's medical debt. Then for 7 million people in our country who are formerly incarcerated, they owe about 50 billion total in prison-related debt. In other words, they're charged rent for their, for, for their, um, for their incarceration. uh, That's the incarceration, right. They have to pay their court-related fees. They have to pay, reimburse the attorney. And they leave with four and five, seven thousand dollars worth of debt. 
And that may not seem like a lot, but it is a lot if you don't have anything else. Right. And so there's income differences, you know, there's class differences in wealth, huge racial differences, because most of those people who hold prison debt are African-Americans who with low education, so they don't earn very much. And, you know, the same thing happens is reflected in the labor market. People at the top, people who've got really good educations and graduate degrees are doing really well. People with a high school degree or less are really in trouble. Hmm. So, so um, I want to I want to ask you before we get back to callers, what you think some of the solutions are for this widening gap, it, it, this wealth tax that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth uh, yeah, Warren yeah, talk yeah. about. Is that one of the things that would make this look a little different? It could, if she could do it. First of all, as a constitutional, to have a federal wealth, annual wealth tax, we have. One of the things we could do is reinstate inheritance taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the problem is if I, let's say I saved in through my pension plan um, $400,000, and over time it's grown into $2 million, and I pass that on to my children, it's valued by them at $2 million. Not Well, wait a minute. Uh, you only, your dad only put 400000 in. What happens to the other $1.6 million? Mm-hmm. Well, that disappears in terms of valuation. So what we need to do is to think of transfers, taxing wealth transfer, for sure. We should do that. That's one thing we could do. Mm-hmm. We need to raise the taxes on capital gains and dividends uh, to the same rate as labor income. We have this one lovely issue in our country that we said we would take care of. Obama said he would, and he didn't. Uh, they said Trump said he wouldn't let it go on, but he did. It's called the carried interest provision. So if you're a wealthy private equity manager, you define your income as capital gains, not as earnings. You don't earn anything. Right. You define it as capital gains, and you pay a rate of 23% instead of a rate of 50%. You pay no Social Security taxes. That costs about $30 billion a year. Why do we do that? Hmm. Why do we allow that? Um, we could limit the one-time tax-exempt gains on your own home. When you sell your own home that you've lived in for a long time, okay, you get to keep the capital gains. Can we limit that to like a million dollars and say you have to pay? You have to pay beyond that? Sure, we could. So I think there's things in the existing um, tax provisions that we could work with that would tax the flow of capital income and it would be significant, and it would reduce these advantages over time that the very top has. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, at the same time, we have to invest in the education and health care for, for those who can't afford it. Uh, it's, it's just, if we want productive, healthy workers. We want people who graduate from school, who can work in the modern economy and make money. Well, we have to invest in them to get them there. The rich say, ah, I don't care about that. I've got a great health care plan for my employer. I can afford any college that I want to, so I don't need the public sector to do that. But, you know, we have to make, you have to make the University of Michigan's, all universities of Michigan, uh, affordable, just like we do in Wisconsin. We have to make sure the kids have access to health care and health insurance, so if they have health problems early on, we can correct them. Those are important things that people can't afford on their own, and those are the investments we should be making. So that's what we should do with some of the money we get back from the rich. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about wealth and wealth inequality, and we want to continue to hear from you, Tom in Northwest Detroit, Michelle in Detroit, Watts in Detroit, Tony in Pontiac. We will get to your calls. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 
WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Talking this hour about wealth and wealth inequality as part of our new series here on WDET called Defining 2020, when we are talking about some of the issues that are going to challenge us as we ramp up for a presidential campaign and the presidential election in November. My guest is Timothy Smeeting. He's a Lee Lee Rainwater Distinguished Professor of Public Affairs and Economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We also want to hear from you. What do you think about the growing inequality between rich and poor? What do you think are some of the solutions to that problem? Do you like this idea of a wealth tax that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are proposing? Or do you think that there are other things we ought to be thinking about. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, and we will try to work you into the conversation there. Let's go to Michelle in Detroit. Michelle, welcome yeah, to Detroit today. Hi. Hey. Um, hold on. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I find this whole conversation very fascinating, and I agree with the um, the issues around wealth disparity, and, and I think it's great. But so, um, but I I've also seen um, labor unions in this country decline, and there's been constant attacks ever since they were uh, found to be constitutionally <laughs> um, sound. Um, and I see it as a vehicle. I see it as a very a strong uh, vehicle for addressing poverty, and and with the with people organizing themselves to make demands both at the workplace and politically on policy. And um, I would suggest that we need to also look at that as well as all the other things that you mentioned as a way to um, have that voice in the political system and um, to make the demands for these changes that you suggested, but also uh, in the workplace itself. Um, And so I I haven't heard anybody mention labor unions. I agree education is... Mm is very important and making accessible and free and that's strong too but no one ever seems to mention the role that labor unions have on addressing poverty and i would like you to comment on that i'll Hmm. make your comments off the air yeah michelle thank you very much for the call uh, in the question, Timothy's meeting, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin are both states that have rich labor histories. They also have recent histories, though, of a real pushback against that labor history. They're both right-to-work states now. Uh, talk about the, the role that labor unions used to play and what role they might play now in this conversation about wealth inequality. Sure, this is a great question. Uh, the more general issue is about should labor have a voice, and I think it should. How does it express that voice is the issue. Okay? In the days of um, big manufacturers and auto industry and where there were large profit centers depending a lot on labor, organizing made great sense. The UAW, the AFL-CIO, my dad was a union carpenter in South Buffalo, I understand this, and they were able to to organize and make demands and get pensions and so forth. Um, And then public sector unions, of course, took off, and the teachers and public sector employees had unions. Well, our Governor Walker pretty much dealt them a really bad blow here in Wisconsin. But now, you know, people are starting to think again about, well, how should labor have its voice? I have a few alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, one way is, of course, unionization. And uh, unionization in the public sector makes some sense, I agree. Unionization in the healthcare sector makes sense, particularly, and nurses actually do fairly well. Teachers' unions make some sense, too. They need some flexibility, but the idea of being taken advantage of is important. Um, uh, so there are, there are places where unions might come back where there are large employers who are making a lot of money, like the hospital sector, and where you have dependent on labor, and they really need that labor, and nurses, nurse practitioners, um, you know, LPNs, uh, people who work in the healthcare sector. So that makes some sense. More generally, though, it would be important to have labor have a voice inside the corporation to sit on the boards. Public policy could, could also help labor. So uh, Harry Holzer at Georgetown has a wonderful idea. Let's reward companies 
for rewarding their employees. So if you give big tax raises, excuse me, salary increases across the board inside your company, then we should give you a tax break. Mm-hmm. Not if you go out and buy a dozen more machines and you replace workers, you know, with robots and and computers. Uh, so that sort of that would be an important piece of public policy. But just having labor have a voice, being part of uh, the conversation in corporate boards. Um, how are you treating your workers? What's your turnover look like? Are your workers happy? Um, or do you treat them like disposable pieces of whatever? Uh, do you offer them a pension plan? Do you help them with their pension? Uh, do you offer you offer leave and job flexibility, uh, job flexibility on the employee side? Those are all really important issues, and those can be done through the corporate boards, I think, and through tax policy. That's more general and probably more effective than just unionization, which in you know in a lot of industries doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, but it does in some. Uh, Michelle, I really appreciate your call uh, and and your question and and moving us into that realm of the discussion. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, what's on your mind? Yeah, thanks for taking a call. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? To answer your question, see, no, I don't worry about other people's money. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm happy with dealing with <laughs> mine. And but you know this whole thing about you know uh, the poor and the wealthy. I mean, it's always been with us. And to me, in terms of those people who are impoverished, the way to them getting out of poverty is education. All right. And in the most cases, education will keep you from becoming impoverished. Because I mean, in terms of the whole thing with going out and trying to get a job, if you don't have a bachelor's and maybe even, not maybe, but even beyond a bachelor's degree, you're out, you know, basically fighting against these uh, people who are like, say, maybe someone to college and uh, beyond high school, but they didn't finish. You know, you're fighting against them and, you know, high school dropouts and graduates, and what are they getting? They're Mm -hmm. getting these minimum wage jobs, which, you know, like, the, the the line of poverty is the water is right below your nostrils, and if you sniff a little bit too much, I mean you're going to drown. Right. But um, but I mean this and this, I mean the wealthy they have to pay their fair share. Yeah. Like Warren Buffett said, why is it that my secretary pays more in taxes? Than I do. Yeah, Tom, I I really appreciate the call. Uh, I, I want to go back to something that Tom was talking about, sort of initially there, which is this idea that education is the path forward for people who are in poverty. I think that is one of the sort of well-known axioms, I guess, of American expectation is that education will get you to a better place. But of course, that is more difficult today than it used to be. Because because of the cost. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate I appreciate the sentiment and exactly what the gentleman's saying. The first thing is to just get to the point you can't stop at high school. You high school graduates used in my state, Wisconsin, and your state, Michigan, used to, you know, a generation ago, twenty five years ago, could walk out of high school into a job that paid twenty five bucks an hour and had a pension and had uh, health care, good health care. Those days are gone. It's not happening in, in Michigan or Wisconsin. It's not happening in the manufacturing sector. The people who are getting jobs are people who have something beyond high school. And a minimum, sectoral training, career and technical education, understanding uh, what happens in modern plants now is they don't just hire people to work on the line. They hire people to tune up the machines and make sure that the robots are working correctly. You don't need a, you know, the people who design those machines have engineering degrees, but the people who maintain them every day, calibrate them, recalibrate them, make sure they're working well, that can be done through technical education. And the interesting thing in today's labor market, when things are really tight, employers are willing to get involved in training those people. Hmm. Sectoral training programs are working across the country because employers are hungry for labor. You don't have to go through all this, that, and the other thing. We don't want people who have bachelor's degrees. We want people who can come and work for us, and we'll pay them a decent wage, but they need to understand and know the skills that we have. That That's just to start with. 
Uh, and beyond that, you know, a bachelor's degree is important. Uh, getting a bachelor's degree, as you said, is more complicated. What we have to do is we need to start, first of all, at the lowest rungs of the ladder, making sure that there's high-quality child care and preschool for every kid, that you have the chance to hit school running. Then when you hit school, the idea is that you're working toward a post-secondary degree of some sort or a certificate of some sort. Mm-hmm. So um, you don't you take math, not art. You take you 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 try, and counselors tell people you have to be in, you have to take the sorts of courses that you're going to need in STEM things, mathematics, technical training, that are you're going to earn you a return. Yeah. yeah. And I've talked, for instance, the big problem right now in Wisconsin, for instance. I know I found out what high school counselors do when they have those staff days. They go to conventions. Mm-hmm. And I had 400 of them last February in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I talked to them about the same thing I've been talking about here. What does it take to, for the next generation? You can't stop after high school. And what they come back and tell me is, we know that. And we think our students know that. But the parents of our students don't know that. They're still saying, well, you know, high school was enough for me. It'll be enough for my kid. It won't be. You definitely have to do something beyond high school. And um, career and technical education is a minimum, but a bachelor's degree pay off in the long run. Mm. Computing pays off in the long run. Working in computing, working in transferable skills. Uh, and that's where the labor market's going. That's where employers are going. And in the labor market like we've got today, many employers are willing to invest in workers because they need them. Yeah. So making those connections is really important. Getting employers involved in training. If you give me, I need 20 people who can do X, Y, and Z, and um, here's what they need, here's where they can get those courses, um, or we'll take them on as apprentices and we'll train them. They'll have a training wage, but there'll be a path forward. Those are the sorts of programs that really work in a tight labor market like we've got today, and we should at a minimum be doing that, at a minimum. Yeah. Uh, let's g- quickly get to a, a, a couple other calls before we run out of time. Tony in Pontiac, you're up next. You there, Tony? Tony? All right. Tony's not paying attention. Uh, no, Tony, Tony, call us back. Uh, <laughs> Watts in Detroit. Uh, Watts, what's on your Hi, mind? Uh, uh-huh. Hi, and thanks. Great show. Um, First of all, the RIS is uh, underfunded and uh, understaffed, and it takes more time and people to get to the people who are hiding their money. Mm-hmm. Also, too, I agree with the uh, with the U.S. policies with the taxes. Uh, do it like the past. Give the corporations, the U.S. manufacturing corporations, a tax break so they can stay here and invest more in more U.S. manufacturing um, so the people have more they're not pitted against other countries of the pe- the people in other countries who make less money and need less money and less benefits. And also, too, like Terry Gross mentioned, uh, today's show is going to be about uh, fighting basically communist China and their mm. ways. We want to keep it here in the USA. Mm. Uh, Watts, I appreciate the call and the perspective there. Let's go to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen, great show, like, uh, like always. Um, I just wanted to say, I have a friend who owns an, a huge HVAC company, and he is so struggling for, for trade people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this state is, is lagging way behind as far as that stuff goes. If anyone's ever tried to get plumbing or, uh, you know, their HVAC taken care of, I mean, it's ridiculous how long you got to wait right now. And right. a lot of these programs, these kids can start in high school and finish, you know, in way less time than a four-year degree and come out doing really well. I mean, these HVAC folks make very good money yeah. with great benefits. And mm-hmm. I just I wasn't sure if you guys had talked about the trades yet. Yeah. But, um, Jimmy, chime in. Jimmy I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. We've got about a minute left, uh, Timothy Smeaning. So uh, go ahead and talk about that, the role. Well, that I think plays. skilled trades are really important. Uh, my dad, like I said, was a union carpenter. And there is good money in skilled trades. Um uh, uh, and you can career technical education if that's what you need in your area. 
If you need people who can do HVAC, if you need if you need people who are skilled in particular areas, and employers are looking for them, then they should we should train them. Mm-hmm. Not every kid has to go to four years of college. Not every kid has to take lots of calculus, but you can actually learn uh, through career and technical education programs. And Massachusetts is a wonderful example. They're well coordinated between the high schools and the community colleges, and they're turning out people that employers want to hire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how that. long that lasts and what happens if there's a, a big recession and so forth, that's more difficult. Yeah. But um, but it's one of the things that could that could help. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. it, it, and you were right before, too. It's not a four-year college degree wrote. And only 12% of the students in America, go to the what they call the selective colleges. Right. It's the top 150. Where the action is in your state is Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan, Western Michigan, and the technical schools. That's right. where the that's where the first year college going and the kids who, you know, are really strapped and are really you know, yeah. time is really important for them. That's where we have to improve the performance and get kids through and get them train them into the labor market. Okay. That's where the action is. It's not yeah. in Ann Arbor and it's not uh, Madison. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Smeeting, uh, Lee Rainwater, Distinguished Professor of Public Affairs and Economics at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks, Steve. Nice to talk with you yes. and your guests. Yes. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow for a conversation with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, plus a look into using behavioral economics to keep our New Year's resolutions. Also want to give a shout out to associate producer Claire Brennan, who produced today's show. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.